This is Sam Swartz and Nick Dodge with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Rebecca Clayfish, a Republican gubernatorial candidate, has tested positive for COVID-19. The Associated Press reports that the former lieutenant governor was exposed at a church in Hudson on September 12th and tested positive on September 17th. Clayfish has been on the campaign trail since she announced her candidacy on September 9th. A campaign spokesperson says that Clayfish was vaccinated earlier this spring. Wisconsin's lawmakers are considering a bill that would create a felony penalty for those who participate in protests where rioting breaks out. The Wisconsin Examiner reports that this is the second time in five years legislative Republicans have attempted to pass such a law. Speaking in a Senate committee hearing last week, Senator Van Wangard said that the bill, quote, addresses the growing popularity of riots and the damage that they perpetrate in our communities, unquote. A judge has ruled that prosecutors can't argue that Kyle Rittenhouse is affiliated with the Proud Boys, a far-right extremist group. Rittenhouse killed two and injured a third at protests in Kenosha last August. Rittenhouse's trial is set to begin November 1st, where he'll face several charges, including homicide. The AP reports that since the shooting, Rittenhouse has been seen fraternizing with members of the Proud Boys. Rittenhouse even traveled to Miami in January to meet the group's national president. But in his decision, Kenosha County Circuit Judge Bruce Schroeder sided with Rittenhouse's attorneys, who argued that Rittenhouse had no connection with the group on the night of the shootings. A judge shot down Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call's attempt to oust Fred Prane from Wisconsin's Natural Resources Board. Prane was appointed to the DNR's policy board by former Governor Scott Walker and has refused to step down even though his term expired in May. Dane County Circuit Judge Valerie Bailey Wren ultimately sided with Pren, who argued that a 1964 state Supreme Court decision allows him to stay in his post until the Republican-held Senate confirms his successor. That's likely a ways off, as legislative Republicans have made no moves to confirm his replacement, a Tony Evers appointee. Attorney General Cowell says he will appeal the decision. Freakfest, the annual downtown Halloween tradition, is again canceled. On Friday, Madison City leaders announced that it would be on hold for the second year in a row. The decision comes as local public health officials continue to work against the surging Delta coronavirus variant. And now, here's your daily COVID-19 news and numbers. The state's rolling seven-day average of new cases currently stands at 2,741 cases. 53% of the state's overall population, or roughly 3,080,000 people, have completed their vaccination series. About 75% of all people living in the Madison Metropolitan School District have been fully vaccinated. That's just north of 185,000 folks. Those numbers come courtesy of the state's Department of Health Services. And that does it for the headlines. Before we turn to more local news, we have a special guest who wants to tell you something about the WORT Fall Pledge Drive. How's the pledge drive going, Andy? It's going. We need you to call 608-256-2001. But uh, it's thrilling to listen to the local news and to you guys bringing the facts, the reality of what's happening here. And you can show your support by calling 608-256-2001. We've already had one online pledge from Ceres. Ceres, uh, you're from some mythical place, right? Somewhere between nothingness and eternity, or perhaps even Argyle. 
I can't remember. Somewhere when I was last in Hades, I think we met. But uh, 608-256-2001, WORTFM.org. Where else do you have a thriving, large newsroom where people are giving you a real slice of the local news. What is happening in local neoliberal circles that is facilitating the upward distribution of wealth and perpetuating our racial disparities and who is energizing and organizing to confront and stop such madness? Who's bought off your congressman today? And who's warming the environment? 608-256-2001, WORTFM.org. We are here for you and we want you to call now. We need your support of local community radio. We got folks like uh, Sam and Nick, and they're in the studio doing the local news. They want to comp, they, they bring great insight, great journalism, but they want your energy and your support for this experiment in community radio. In our backyard, morphed into the local news and has been at it for well over a decade. WRT has been at it for 46, 47 years, and we need you to. Stop at the cement bed pillbox at 118 South Bedford Street or give us a call at 608-256-2001. We'll make it easy where you can support five, whether you can afford $5 or $500. Give us a call, 608-256-2001. We're going back to the studio with Sam and Nick. Bang. The city of Madison is currently collecting public input on new aldermanic districts, but in the once-every-decade redistricting process is on a tight timeline this year as city and county planners race against the clock to redraw maps ahead of next year's elections. Our producer, Jonah Chester, fills us in on the details. Precise returns from the 2020 U.S. Census came late this year, which means state and local officials have a compressed timeline for redrawing legislative and aldermanic maps. That process needs to be completed quickly as the spring 2022 elections are right around the corner. Ben Zellers, a Madison City planner, says that a compressed timeline also means less time for public input. So, yeah, we're just kind of doing as much as we can with the time that we have, realizing that we really need to have these uh, new districts in place and time for people to circulate nomination papers uh, in December for the spring 2022 elections. Madisonians can offer input on new aldermanic districts by visiting their local libraries in the next week, by checking out an online redistricting map, or by attending one of two virtual redistricting information meetings this Wednesday at noon or 6 p.m. Um, and then we're always accepting comments, thoughts, feedback uh, through our redistricting at cityofmadison.com uh, e email address as well. According to census returns, Madison has grown unevenly in the past decade. City Council districts currently range from 11,600 residents to 18,500 residents. To average out, each of the city's 20 districts need to contain about 13,700 people post-redistricting. That number also takes into account the roughly 5,000-person population increase that will occur when portions of the town of Madison are absorbed by the city of Madison on Halloween 2022. Brian Grady, the city's principal planner, says Madison's less populated districts will likely change the most. He says that in the more densely populated downtown area, districts can change by just a few blocks. Some blocks in the downtown area include you know, almost 2,000 people, uh, where, where in other parts of the city, 2,000 people might, might be an entire neighborhood. And so the map's going to look a lot different in areas 
kind of uh, um, outside of downtown. Dane County's redistricting commission has also been reviewing supervisory district maps submitted by members of the public. Brian Standing, a WORT contributor and senior Dane County planner, says the deadline for folks to submit new maps has passed. But Standing says there's still other opportunities for folks to get involved in county-level redistricting. So we had a number of submittals, uh, well over a dozen, I think, that made the cut and uh, are going to be reviewed at our public hearing on the Thursday, the 23rd at 7 p.m. And then the commission will be making a final selection of three maps to recommend to the county board on September 30th. And then there'll be public hearings in front of the county board as well in October. The city council is tentatively set to approve the new maps on November 2nd. County supervisory maps will be approved and adopted shortly afterwards. Meanwhile, as local leaders rush to finish their redistricting, Wisconsin state lawmakers are already duking their redistricting battle out in court. A flurry of lawsuits from both sides of the aisle have been flooding state and federal courts as part of a decennial tradition in Wisconsin politics. Last time around, a lawsuit challenging Wisconsin's legislative maps went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. On Halloween 2022, the town of Madison will be absorbed into the cities of Madison and Fitchburg through a process called attachment. The plan has been nearly 20 years in the works, and it's got a lot of locals wondering, what does this mean for me? For the answer to that question, we pass things off to WORT reporter Ben Kern. As of October 31st, 2022, residents of the town of Madison will integrate into either Fitchburg or the city of Madison. The town of Madison primarily consists of several geographic regions that lie on the south side of the city of Madison, hugging the Beltline Highway and scattered sections from Whitney Way to John Nolan Drive. There are even geographically independent areas nudging the coasts of Lake Wingra and Lake Mendota. For the city of Madison, these new areas will account for one of the largest population spikes ever recorded according to Heather Stouter, Madison's Director of Planning. You know, we'll be welcoming nearly 5,000 new residents overnight. There are about 2,400 additional residential housing units that will be uh, joining the city of Madison from the town, and over 800 properties total on about 600 acres of land. And so for the city, this is by far the largest overnight change that we will have ever experienced. Last Wednesday, City of Madison officials held a public information meeting to walk folks through the process. One concern that arose was the timeline for transitioning public services, such as emergency response and the fire department. Stouter says the city has been handling those operations for nearly a year. November of last year, um, the City of Madison has been providing fire and EMS services and also building inspection services within the areas that will eventually um, come into the city. And come October of next year, you know, all of the all of the residents that come into the city of Madison or the city of Fitchburg will enjoy new service delivery from those cities, um, from a wide array of, of city agencies. The city of Madison Police Department will begin managing law enforcement in the transition area next month. Stouter says that the city is still working out new property tax rates for residents of the transition area. I don't think we know yet, but we can say a little bit about the timing. For the city of Madison, we're uh, we're sure at this point that uh, the properties within the town that are coming in will be reassessed in early 2023 for the 20 for the late 
2023 tax bill. And so next year in 2022, folks will still be paying um, tax rates based on uh, the town level assessments. Hannah Mohelnitsky, the City of Madison Engineering Department's public information officer, says that voters won't need to re-register once the attachment process is complete. Polling places will be changing. The city clerk's office will notify each registered voter regarding their new polling location. Voters will not need to re-register. Will not need to re-register. The state will transfer their voting registrations from the town to the city. The change in poll locations will occur before the November 2022 elections. You can find more details about the attachment process online at the City of Madison's website. Reporting from WORT News, I'm Ben Kern. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Before we turn to our next story, we want to check back in with Andy Height, who wants to tell you a little something about WORT's Fall Pledge Drive. Hey, this is a We Listen we pledge. Now's the time. 608-256-2001, WRTFM.org. We need to light the phones up, the old mythical Grand Slam. We get every line lit up, 608-256-2001, and that makes things great for volunteers like Sam and Nick. They're talking about the gerrymanders. You know, the Stranglers once saying that my gerrymander works out nice, but It don't work out for us. We know that in American politics, it's better to cheat and win and play fair and lose. And we'll be exposing that cheating here on WORT, 608-256-2001. If you're concerned about the contemporary conundrums of American capitalism in rampant decline, you can call 608-256-2001. We need, we want your support on WORT. Without you, there is no us in this beautiful experiment in community radio. 608-256-2001. Back to Sam and Nick. Thank you, Andy. Wisconsin Manufacturers and and Commerce, the state's largest industry lobbying group, is currently suing the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources over the DNR's authority to regulate pollution. If WMC wins the case, environmental advocacy groups warn that it could bar the DNR from enforcing a crucial pollution control policy. Last week, a Waukesha County Circuit judge barred Midwest environmental advocates and several other environmental organizations from directly intervening in the case. Instead, the groups will be allowed to file an amicus brief supporting the DNR's position. For more, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Tony Wilkin-Gibbert, the executive director of Midwest Environmental Advocates. So we'll jump into the Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce versus DNR case here in just a minute. But first, I think it's important we lay a little bit of groundwork. Can you walk me through Wisconsin's spills law? Absolutely. The Spills Law is a bedrock environmental protection in Wisconsin that has been on the books since 1978. And it is the law that allows the state to order investigation and remediation of toxic substances that are released into the environment. It's just that simple. It stands for the principle that if you make a mess, you have to clean it up. And when the legislature was passing this law back in the late 1970s, that was you know, really the beginning of the first decade of the modern environmental movement. And people were demanding that we do more to protect ourselves and our communities from industrial contamination. And the state responded by 
and the legislature responded by giving DNR broad, explicit authority to deal with the release of hazardous substances and to do so with the flexibility and speediness that is required to protect the public. And it is, you know, it's those aspects that are really critical to the law that are under attack in WMC's lawsuit against the state, Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce's lawsuit against the state. Let's zero in on that point a little bit more. Now, this lawsuit was filed back in February. Now, a judge just granted y'all at Midwest Environmental Advocates, alongside a few other environmental advocacy groups, uh, the right to file an amicus brief in this case. Now, in materials you've released and statements you, you've stated on this case, you argue that it will significantly weaken the authority of the DNR under Wisconsin Spills Law. Walk me through that. Why would it weaken the DNR's authority? Sure. WMC is alleging that before DNR can address any toxic substance, that they need to go through a complicated, years-long rulemaking process to specify the quantities and concentrations that DNR believes are hazardous. The problem with this is that it is completely contrary to the intent and the design of the Spills Law and the way the Spills Law has operated for over, over 40 years. So that lo- that list that they are asking for does not exist for any hazardous substance or any toxic chemical because it's never been a part of the way the program has worked. And so if they are fully successful in this lawsuit and if a court orders DNR to promulgate that list through the complicated years-long rulemaking process, it could be, uh, as I've been saying, years if ever, that we are able to restore the DNR to the previous level of authority that it currently has to protect Wisconsin communities. So this is effectively an implicit repeal of this bedrock environmental protection, because if WMC gets what they want, the spills law will be inoperable until rulemaking can go through. And there are lots of reasons why it is likely that DNR will not be able to pass the necessary rules through the rulemaking process to recoup that public health authority. As I mentioned, the length, it's the rulemaking process is also notoriously prone to special interest influence. WMC has supported changes to the rulemaking process over the last 10 years that give special interests like WMC more power. And there's another law that passed in 2017 that says if a rule will cost more than $10 million in compliance costs over a two-year period, the agency can't promulgate the rule. And it's very likely that a rule that would be required to basically re-implement this entire bedrock environmental protection, the Spills Law, will cost more than $10 million over a two-year period to polluters. And so it's incredibly likely that DNR won't be able to pass the rule needed to remediate the, or I should say, to recoup the power that it currently has. So this case was initially filed in February. Um, Y'all will be filing an amicus brief or have filed an amicus brief. The court granted you the ability to do that. But do we have any idea of the timeline for this case? Is it going to be wrapped up soon or is this one that's going to get mired in the courts for the foreseeable future? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we're at the circuit court level. uh, So that's the first court to hear the case. Uh, This is a court sitting in Waukesha County. And that court has a hearing scheduled for November, and the rulings that come out of that hearing 
might decide the legal issues one way or another. I think that's likely, but I do think that it is also likely that we will see appeals regardless of what happens at the trial court level. And so it is possible that this will stretch on for, you know, many months or even, you know, uh, years. I think what's going to be especially critical is that the state be allowed to continue to protect Wisconsin communities from toxic chemicals during the pendency of the of the lawsuit. It would be harmful if this law was rendered inoperable in the ways that I've been talking about during the appellate process. We, we want to make sure that DNR continues to have the authority that the legislature gave it 40 years ago during the legal process and then, of course, at the conclusion of the legal process. Tony, thank you so much for joining me today. Before I let you go, is there anything else about this case you want to raise that we haven't had the chance to touch on here today that you, you think folks should be aware of? We, we haven't really talked about PFAS at all. And, you know, your listeners probably know that PFAS are the toxic chemicals that have been used in consumer and industrial products like Teflon for many, many years, and that they're toxic in extremely small quantities and that they persist in the environment. The federal and state government are beginning the process of trying to set environmental standards for PFAS contamination. And while that is ongoing, the spills law is the only law that allows any government to take action with respect to known sites of PFAS contamination. So the spills law is the only law that allows DNR to order investigation and remediation and even just emergency bottled water in places like Marinette, where Tyco Johnson Controls is responsible for uh, widespread PFAS contamination, or on French Island in La Crosse, where drinking water is contaminated with elevated levels of PFAS. So the immediate health consequences of WMC being successful is that the Wisconsin communities who are most struggling with this emerging highly toxic, highly persistent contaminant will be left without protection. And again, I think that that is unconscionable. So I just wanted to mention that. And then I I think in our conversation, I really tried to explain what could happen uh, in terms of the law and the status of the law if WMC were successful. And wanted, you know, to do that, to explain why this lawsuit has such wide implications, that it could effectively nullify a longstanding public health and environmental health protection in the state of Wisconsin. Tony, thank you so much for coming on the show and joining me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Tony Wilkin-Gibbart is the executive director of Midwest Environmental Advocates. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. We get the week ahead in local government. Remember the life and work of Upton Sinclair. And check out two new movies. But now we'll check in on some local, excuse me, not local, this around the world, some international headlines from around the world back in a flash.
The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge, here with my co-host, Sam Schwartz. Thanks for joining us. Every Monday, we sit down with Brenda Conkle of ForwardLookout.com to scan local government agendas and figure out what's up next for city and county leaders. Conkle spoke with WORT's Dylan Brogan shortly before airtime today. All right, it is Monday. That means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com to see what's happening this week in local government. We'll start with Dane County. They don't got a lot of meetings for some reason. No editorializing there. But they did have one today at noon, and it was the Public Works Sustainability Subcommittee. What are they talking about? So this is a committee that works on uh, various sustainability projects within Dane County. So they're talking about some Alliant Energy Center lighting um, and how to spend their SMART fund, which is what they call their sustainability fund. Um, And so they're just looking at some of the ways that they will be doing some better purchasing as well. Lighting's important. And Thursday, 11 a.m., the Community Development Block Grant Commission, their application review team is meeting at 11 o'clock. This is on Thursday. So, yeah, the, um, the Community Development Block Grant, it, very important to a lot of organizations doing good work in the community. Yeah, um, they work on a lot of housing projects as well as um, projects that are for services. Um, So they've gotten a lot of extra money during COVID, and so they are working on their 2022 regular proposal process that they normally do. The Board of Health for Madison to Dane County at 5 p.m., their executive committee is meeting. That's in in these times, obviously, an important board. So, yeah, what is the health department doing? Oh, they're spending an extra $3 million because we're not done with COVID. And so they have some resolutions um, for more funding for ongoing COVID response and recovery efforts. Um, And then they have another grant that they'll be accepting some funds for testing efforts. And 7 p.m., the full county board, the big shebang is meeting. It doesn't look like they have a ton on their agenda, though, Brenda. They don't. They had a weird agenda this time. Um, They will be starting out by doing a memorial to Dane County Supervisor Julie Schwellenbach, who passed away a few months ago now. Um, so they'll start out with that and be a little bit of a sad start to the meeting. Um, but then they will be talking about several grants that they're offering to um, continue with homeless services that they've been providing during COVID. Okay. Um, they'll be looking at some affordable housing projects, and then they will be looking at uh, that air purification projects that they have for the Dane County uh, City County building. And the redistricting commission, they're uh, going to have a public hearing on proposed maps and a review of proposed supervisor district maps. Um, so this is kind of an interesting committee. It's all citizens, right? Maybe a lot of positives to that. Uh, I'm also hearing a little grumblings that maybe they're not necessarily honoring uh, the historic districts. So what's going on with that? Do you have any insight? Um, I haven't heard as much of the grumbling at the county level as I have at the city level, Um, but definitely these processes are moving very fast. Um, Some of the people who are currently elected don't like how the the maps are shaping up. Um, Some of the communities feel like their communities are being divided up. So um, now is the time to pay attention, though, because it's going to move really quick. Yes, it is. All right. So finally, Dane County redeemed itself with an interesting meeting on uh, Thursday at 7. Me and you, we like these public meetings, but that is a boring me- week for the county, except for that last item. You and I and the League of Women Voters will be there. <laughs> That's right. All right. And we'll move on to the city of Madison. 
where there are a bunch of meetings that have are already in progress, just so people know about it. Uh, the Transportation Policy and Planning Board, the Plan Commission is reviewing a, a bunch of projects. I'd go to forwardlookout.com to see if any of those might impact you. There's the President's Work Group, and that's the Council President's Work Group on Racial Justice, Anti-Racism, and Equity. So they're seeing, um, they're getting a presentation that's already in progress about uh, budgeting through a social justice lens, and that's pretty important because Tuesday, uh, the the Common Council's Executive Committee is meeting at 4.30 to talk about, bud- are they involved budget stuff, or am I getting ahead of myself? Well, the, it's oh, budget not season. Budget yet. Yep, no, they're not talking about budget yet. They have been, are getting an update about the 311 system at 4.30. Um, that's sort of like the the municipal 411 system. Yeah. If you need information about the city, um, they've been talking about this for 20 years. I don't know if it's actually moving forward or not. Um, they also are going to be talking about um, what the the Common Council Executive Committee should actually be working on. Oh, well, that's um, and that always they're, good. Well, they're um, changing the ordinances to allow them to have Zoom meetings in the future. Okay, and so and then we move on 6 p.m. Uh, Finance Committee. And then is the, are they just doing a really short meeting uh, before the common council meeting with all 20 alders at 630? Yeah, every year when they do their municipal bonds, they, they, they put them out to bid on Tuesday morning and they vote on them Tuesday night. Yeah. Um, and so um, they're going to be getting the bids in. The, um, they've been offered um, various rates. And so they're going to take a look at them and decide what to propose to the council at 630. And then the council, are they doing anything besides budget stuff? Because the capital budget is um, the big to-do tonight, which is uh, a little bit different because I kind of I feel like the capital budget versus the operating budget. The capital budget is like, uh, maybe this will happen. <laughs> yeah. You can, uh, operating budget, like it's happening. So right. we're not quite at uh, operating yet, but the capital budget is still important. Yeah, this is the first of three public hearings they'll have in front of the city council. And that bar- those borrowing resolutions we were just talking about, that's when they actually decide how much money they're really spending and then they borrow it. So, um, yeah, the capital budget is kind of a five-year plan more than it is uh, absolutely going to happen. Um, they have a couple um, confirmation hearings for some of the folks. Uh, Norm Davis, uh, the civil rights director, and Mary Beth Witzel-Bell for the city clerk. The men's shelter criteria resolutions finally coming back, but I think that everybody's pretty much decided that that is at this point a moot point and will be sort of essentially tossed in the garbage. Um, they are also going to be looking at a wage increase parity for municipal employees. Um, and then they have the Odana area plan and um, that resolution to support the nurses at UW uh, Wisconsin. Still Wednesday, the Transportation Commission is meeting virtually. And they will be talking about BRT and Judge Doyle Square, which has been happening forever. But what are what are the details, Brenda? Sure, um, they are looking at giving some more money to the people who bid on the Complete Streets project, um, and then they will be looking at um, trying to figure out how to get a grant to. Um, but it says persistent poverty areas of the city of Madison, mm. trying to get better bus service for some of the areas of Madison that don't have such great uh, service. And then they are looking at the Madison Metro Network redesign study. Um, so looking at how to redesign uh, where the buses go. Which might be important with BRT. Yes. Yes. Uh, 630 Wednesday, the board and BRT is bus rapid transit. We got we're being too jargony here, Brenda. OK. <laughs> Take it back. The Board of Park Commissioners, the BOPC, 
<laughs> we don't really call it that. No, uh, just the just the park commissioner. Uh, <laughs> it, they're talking about um, all sorts of crap. What are they talking about, Brenda? Not we're crap. Good it. stuff. Bicycle adventures. <laughs> a Madison bicycle adventure trail. I I assume, but I don't actually know exactly what it means. It feels like it's code for. Uh, drip egg trails, but maybe not. <laughs> I, no I think it's a bicycle trail um, where there's like a pit of uh, crocodiles <laughs> right. that you have to like navigate through. That's the kind, but it's that the feasibility that would need a feasibility study. How are you going right. to feed up the crocodiles? <laughs> What's the acceptable level of risk? All right, yeah, keep yeah, going, yeah. Brenda. I'm sorry, I've derailed us terribly. That's okay. Um, they're also going to be looking at. Uh, Determining that 837 Hughes Place, right next to the fire uh, state or the police department station on the south side, mm-hmm. is going to be surplus uh, property. Um, they're also looking at um, allowing the parks department to con- continue to allow events in the parks that encourage the use of park spaces for economic recovery. Um, and then, last but not least, they are looking at banning alcohol in Rindell Park. Oh well, then what's that about? Hmm. Yeah, really. <laughs> Maybe that homeless encampment that nobody wants to talk about and they don't really know what to do with. Yeah, uh, I'm sure it won't get enforced by the soccer fields, but it will get enforced mm. up front. <laughs> All right, Thursday, 3 p.m., we'll end with the Madison Guaranteed Income Pilot Program Task Force. And uh, this is um, a pilot project that a couple of cities are participating in. Uh, just if people are interested in this is probably a good way to check in on it. Yeah, definitely. Um, they're getting a bunch of updates about the project and um, how they might do it in the city of Madison, as well as determining what they're going to call it. Oh, okay. Well, that sounds good. I like coming up with names. And uh, if you want to know what all the city meetings and county meetings happening this week and some handy links to agendas and um, other items of note, head over to forwardlookout.com. Brenda, thank you for walking us through this week in local government. You're so welcome. This week on The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson remembers the life and work of Upton Sinclair, the iconic 20th century author best known for his novel, The Jungle. Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long Today, September 20th, marks the birth of Upton Sinclair in 1878 in Baltimore, Maryland. During his long, controversy-filled life, he wrote 100 books, became a leading member of the Socialist Party, and an unsuccessful politician. But he is remembered most as the author of The Jungle, written in 1906, that made him famous and rich. Sinclair's early years were spent with dotting parents, both from wealthy Southern families, but his father's family had lost their money. Sinclair's mother was puritanically opposed the consumption of coffee or tea, and most especially alcohol. Sinclair's dad, meanwhile, a liquor salesman, became an alcoholic. So Sinclair saw conflicts early in his life, and a contrast between the poverty of his parents and the wealth of his grandparents. Encouraged by his parents, he had become a voracious reader. Once a fellow student bragged that a magazine was printing a short story he wrote, Sinclair thought, I can do that. He promptly sold a magazine story about raising a young bird, earning $25, a vast sum then. He found that writing was an easy way to make money and also supported his parents with his income. Although Sinclair was kept out of school with health concerns, 
until age 10, he was a prodigy, finishing high school at 14. At 15, he paid his way to City College of New York and later Columbia. At 19, he was a self-supporting writer of published juvenile novels. He won magazine assignments and turned them into novels. Then in 1900, at age 22, Sinclair decided to become a serious writer. During this period, he wrote several unsuccessful books and also married a childhood friend, Meta Fuller. In 1902, Sinclair's friends urged him to read Marx, Kropotkin, and Bellamy's Looking Backward, and he became a socialist. This inspired him to write other books, but they made no money. He wrote a passionate article that employed a, the recently defeated striking Chicago packing house workers not to give up, and sent it to the major socialist mass publication, The Appeal to Reason. In 1904, The Appeal had 250,000 readers and was growing fast. The editors enthusiastically accepted Sinclair's article and asked him to write a serial on wage slavery for later publication as a book for $500. Sinclair also got Macmillan Publishers to advance him another $500. Then he was off to Chicago. He made contacts with reformers who gave him the information he needed. He decided to use the slaughterhouses as the setting to broaden his base of readers and appeal to their self-interest. After all, everybody ate. Many already were concerned about the appalling, unhealthy conditions in the meatpacking industry. His true subject was the working conditions that he thought approached slavery. His argument was that the capitalism behind such conditions should give way to socialism. Sinclair later said, I aimed for their heart, but I hit their stomach. Sinclair was inspired by the Lithuanian wedding party he had attended that became the opening chapter and the basis for his main character, Jujus. The serial was fairly popular, but new editors at The Appeal redirected the paper and ended the serial early. They offered to send the novel free to readers who wanted to read the conclusion. Meanwhile, editors at Macmillan had backed out after criticism by their review readers and worries over a lawsuit from Armour, the company the novel was based on. Fortunately, Doubleday Page picked up the book after a junior staffer, Isaac Markelson was spellbound by its power and originality. Markelson took charge of advancing the book and handling its publicity and public relations, then a new concept. Doubleday's treasurer sent a book copy to the Chicago Tribune to check its accuracy. Not surprisingly, the Tribune condemned its contents. They were directly influenced by a publicity agent for the Meatpackers, as Doubleday's attorney later discovered. But then Doubleday's Markelson found two doctors in Chicago who confirmed Sinclair's positions, and Sinclair agreed to sit down with the publishers and take out anything libelous. So Doubleday published the book in 1906. The public fight over the jungle had pressured President Teddy Roosevelt to support the Pure Food and Drug Act. After 10 years of effort, the bill finally passed on July 23, 1906, followed by a companion law, the Meat Inspection Amendment. Sinclair went on to write 100 books in all and to lead a reform effort called End Poverty in California, Epic. He ran for several public offices, but lost. He ran for governor in 1934 when Epic took over the Democratic Party, gaining over 40% of the vote. But those are stories for another day. For the past is in the past, I'm Harry Richardson. Coming up in just a bit, we'll hear about two new movies, also from Harry. But first, we're asking for your financial support during WORT's Fall Pledge Drive. We pass it off back to Andy Height for the details. It could not be easier. Just dial 256-2001. That's 608-256-2001. Or online at wortfm.org. You can join Siri. 
uh, series, rather, 608 256 2001. There, they're throwing some serious news at you and what's happening, as well as some great history with Upton Sinclair. And we need you to support this great radio, this great programming right now. So give us a call at 608 256 2001. We want your support on listener sponsored community radio. So easy. The phone answers are knowledgeable, reasonably polite and uh, well-spoken that can tell you what the premiums are and you know what the advantage is of supporting WORT. You are supporting an endeavor in community radio that brings us together in a beautiful and majestic fashion. And all you have to do is dial 608-622-5585. We need some pledges to support this great programming and all the blood, sweat, and tears that go into it. So please give us a call at 608-256-2001. That's 608-256-2001. Please pull over right now on the belt line in the uh, side lane, 608-256-2001. Let's rock the house. Back to Sam and Nick in the newsroom. Boom. Thank you, Andy. On this week's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson checks out two very different movies. Love and Monsters, an entry in the growing genre of post-apocalyptic comedy action films, and The Card Counter, a serious movie by director Paul Schrader. The day of the monster uprising was the day I lost everyone. That was a clip from the trailer for the post-apocalyptic action comedy Love and Monsters, directed by Michael Matthews. This is a fun escapist movie with a lot of heart. It came out last year, but just started streaming on Hulu. Our story is about a young man, Joel, an appealing everyman, Dylan O'Brien. Joel was 17 when the world as we know it ended. Earth scientists launched a series of rockets to destroy an approaching asteroid, but the chemicals that rained down from the rockets altered the genetic makeup of bugs and reptiles, making them larger and deadlier. Joel and his girlfriend, Amy, have fun Jessica Henwick, are snuggling in her car when the end comes. They rush down to their small California town and are separated. Joel attempts to flee with his parents. Jessica goes off to meet hers. Joel says, I'll find you. Joel's parents are dispatched by giant bugs, and he's scooped up by some plucky survivors. The giant creatures eventually overcome mankind, and its remnants are scattered in underground bunkers. Seven years later, Joel is fairly miserable as the only single person in a bunker of several couples. They have become hardened survivors, except for Joel, who freezes when attacked. He has become the group cook. He makes a mean minestrone, everyone says, when he's down after the last run-in with giant bugs. Several months ago, Joel had gotten in touch via ham radio with Amy. He decides to make the perilous journey some 80 miles through monster-infested land to see her. His friends try, but not very hard, to convince him not to go. Nobody gives him much of a chance. This is where our story really takes off. Joel has a couple of minor run-ins with monsters and doesn't die. Then he meets a dog named Boy, and they bond. Then he hooks up with a couple of surface survivors going north to the mountains where there is a colony and fewer monsters. Tough Clyde, Michael Rooker, and his enthusiastic traveling companion, Minnow, Ariana Greenblatt. Together they teach Joel some important survival skills. You get the idea. Nothing all that surprising, but a lot of fun with low-tech special effects and a great cast. Now for something more serious, a good film, but not for everyone. Poker's all about waiting. Check. Raise. Re-raise. Call. 
Then something happens. You remember it? This world. That was a clip from the trailer for The Card Counter, written and directed by Paul Schrader, one of our most distinctive directors. This movie has been compared to his earlier work, especially the recent First Reformed. This film's anti-hero is William Tell, an incredible Oscar Isaac. The movie uses voiceovers and diary entries to explain the repressed control character of Tell. Tell has spent eight years in federal prison, but still carries the guilt of his crimes. Tell was one of the torturers at Abu Ghraib, U.S. Army prison in Iraq. He was one of the few imprisoned for their crimes. No higher-ups in the military government or private contractors were punished. The truth was revealed by a whistleblower, specialist Joseph Darby, who discovered torture photos on CD-ROM and reported them to his superiors. Seymour Hirsch did a fine investigative report on this in The New Yorker in August of 2004. This film is not for everyone. It's very bleak and has several scenes of torture. Tell found prison and its routine reassuring and read a lot of books. He learned to count cards there and uses that skill to make a modest living. Counting cards is technically illegal, so Tell doesn't make too much money at any one casino to avoid unwanted attention. His routine is challenged when he meets the vibrant, amusing Lalinda Tiffany Haddish, a handler who manages a group of professional card players called a stable and helps them get the backing of rich investors. Tell turns down her offer, but then he meets Kurt, a young, scraggly man out for revenge, Ty Sheridan. Kurt wants to torture and kill a former contractor, Major Gordo, a great William Defoe. He blames Gordo, one of the contractors at Abu Ghraib, for the death of his father, who, after years of abusing his spouse and son, killed himself. What follows is a gripping, violent, tragic story about American violence coming home to roost. Well worth seeing. Check it out at the theaters if you can do so safely. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks so much for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Ben Kern. Welcome to the team, Ben. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan. Jonah Chester produced this new ca- newscast. Victor Calzoni was our engineer for the evening. And Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Nick Dodge. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. And we're going to pass it off one last time to Andy Height in the studio before we go. Good night, and keep those pledges coming. 608-256-2001. Please support this great station, this great programming, and these great journalistic contributors bringing you such an interesting array of culture, politics, views, and news that we need here. This is what you call quality calories for the cerebellum so that you can be exposed to the local news that we need. If you need to sharpen your pitchfork or heaten up your torch, you need to know when, where, how, and why. And they will be bringing that right to you on the local news. Hey, I want to thank Trisha and Doug. They love local news, Democracy Now! and the Afternoon Jazz. We want to thank a bunch more people. We need five pledges right now in the last five minutes of the show. we got to get our pledge answers busy, and we need your support. 
W-O-R-T is about having the kind of diverse array of volunteers to come together to bring beautiful music and important news and views to you so that you can have an innate understanding of the contemporary conundrum that's in front of you and be able to eviscerate the subterfuge so that you can understand the reality not how you're programmed, but how you interpret that reality to be able to put yourself in a position to make a change. At some point, the time comes that we need to stand at the barriers and shout an everlasting nay. And it helps to be informed and not follow like a bah sheep. 608-256-2001. Hey, I want to support thank a pledge from the honey dog from madison and honey dog loves the local news pan africa and global revolutions how can you not love those shows the amazing new uh new djs on glow on pan africa are making it happen martine on global revolutions is always up to cost and you know we got the news we got the views we got the power and we're bringing the power to the people and we are power to the people looking peacefully at how we make our community better. One of those ways is to keep WORT strong. So dial us up, 608-256-2001, or do it online. we got a very safe, secure system, 608-256-2001, or online in that secure system at WORT fm.org you know the the cool front's coming it's the harvest moon tonight so please 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 for the full moon you can pledge to wort 89.9 fm madison you listen you pledge we listen we pledge if you only pledge on the harvest moon tonight is the time 608-256-2001 and thank Rip your clothes off, go out in your backyard, break out the drum, and dance. You can hear the cacophony across our neighborhood of WORT pledgers dancing naked in their backyards, thinking and being and living community radio. Universal change is on the horizon. If not, we ain't got much to show for, for our children and our grandchildren. Is the extinction on the cusp? 608-256-2001. We need your support. There's only a couple minutes left. We want to beat our goal. We really need you to call. So pick it up. 608-256-2001. Support this great radio station and the great elements that WORT brings 24-7, 365.25 days per year. All you have to do is type in WORTFM.org. Or you can fasten your seatbelt, pick up your phone, and dial 608-256-2001. WRT is a labor of love, volunteer-powered. You listen, you pledge. We listen, we pledge. We're in this together. And we may not have it all together, but together we can have it all. 256-2001. 608-256-2001. Thank you very much for supporting WORT. And you are listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison.